as the kids are dismissed, as um, Mark shared, um, you know, what a gift that God redeems the things of this world, including our birthdays, uh, for his good purposes. And uh, yeah, we're, what, eight days into 2023 already, and, you know, still looking back at this past year, 2022, um, for me, there's so many things to be thankful for. And you know, what a helpful encouragement and reminder last Sunday, what we heard from Pastor Rick, you know, that God was sovereign over every moment of it, uh, that he was leading us, he was protecting us, he was providing for us, and uh, in that we can hope for this new year. And looking ahead, uh, we anticipate many of the changes that this new year will bring. For some of you, we'll be graduating from college and getting your very first job. You know, others of you are engaged, looking forward to your wedding day. Uh, still others of you are expecting, uh, whether it's your first child or your fourth. Some of us hope for better health in 2023 or for the opportunity to purchase your first home or to remodel your home. And perhaps many of you have even set New Year's resolutions to achieve your desired goals, whether they be physical goals or spiritual ones. And yet, uh, as Pastor Mark mentioned yesterday, I officially celebrated another year of life. And aside from my boys wishing me happy birthday as I came home from our early uh, leadership meeting, I noticed a few more gray hairs on my face. And it's just a sobering reminder that I'm not getting any younger and that the days of my youth and the days of my prime are behind me. But this is not just my own personal experience, but that of my older patients who remind me when they come in for their annual checkups um, of what all I have to look forward to, right? Um, whether it's our prostate becoming an issue or menopause for women, right? Our memories starting to decline or arthritis setting in. Getting older is never a pleasant experience. But beyond our personal health, we hope that 2023 will bring some positive changes and stability in the world around us. Many of us are anxiously waiting for the stock market to rebound, for interest rates to come down and the economy to turn around. As Republicans take over the majority in the House and as Democrats strengthen their slim hold in the Senate, we hope to see something other than blame shifting and finger pointing from our leaders in Congress. We pray that the COVID pandemic remains a thing of the past and that the war in Ukraine will finally come to an end. Yet the reality is that much in our lives and in our world will remain status quo. Sadly, there will still be wars and conflicts, school shootings, social injustices, economic hardship and political partisanship. Some of us will suffer loss of health, loss of jobs, and loss of friends in 2023. And tragically, we will continue to hear of those whose lives we know that are cut short by cancer, by heart attack, or by suicide. Things will continue as they are, for until Christ returns, we live in a fallen and broken world under the curse of sin and death. And it begs this question of all of us, 
How then should we live? Billionaire investor Warren Buffett, who is not a Christian, once said, there's one thing you cannot buy. I mean, I can buy anything I want, basically, but I can't buy time. Given this reality, whether we are in our 20s or whether we're in our 50s, whether you're single or married, how can you and I redeem this next year of our lives? And not just 2023, but all our days under the sun. That is the ultimate question posed by the book of Ecclesiastes and what we will consider for ourselves this morning. If I can have my first slide. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, just to give an overview, was written by King Solomon toward the end of his life. As part of Old Testament wisdom literature, along with Proverbs and the book of Job, Ecclesiastes represents Solomon's reflections on the purpose and meaning of life. Written by the wisest and wealthiest man to have ever lived, it probably would have been at the top of the most, most bestseller list where it published back then. However, over the centuries, the book has been subjected to a wide array of interpretations, both by Christian and liberal scholars. But in the end, Ecclesiastes claims to be the inspired words of God, given by one shepherd whose words are firmly fixed. Thus, our job this morning is to listen carefully to the voice of the one shepherd as he has revealed to us in his words his will for our lives. And specifically in Ecclesiastes 11 through 12, he shows us three ways we ought to live in order to redeem all our days under the sun. Three ways we ought to live in order to redeem all our days under the sun. And the first is to remember the vanity of this life. Ecclesiastes presumes a knowledge of the creation and fall as described in Genesis 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it good. Order is seen in the world that the Lord has fixed. God made man in his image. God made us upright. And he set eternity in our hearts. God decreed that we should work and rule over his creation. Life in the Garden of Eden was delightful, it was meaningful, and it was eternal. However, the life described in the book of Ecclesiastes and what is seen in the world today is a far cry from the paradise that the Creator had made man to dwell in with him. The reason for this is given in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, where the Lord confronts Adam following his deliberate act of disobedience as he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So turn there with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And starting in verse 17... We read, And he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ultimately, the struggles shared by Solomon can be attributed to sin and its effects. In many ways, life is a curse, not only in the physical sense of toil and labor, but also in the mental frustration. Everything about this world is marred by sin's curse on creation, and no sphere of life escapes the effects of the fall. This sobering reality is captured in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul explains, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is true today as it was back then. For ever since the fall, life outside the garden has never been the same. The troubles that you and I experience in our daily lives stem from man's rebellion against our Creator. This is our fundamental problem, and the root of all our pain, of all our suffering, our weaknesses, and confusion. And in the end, death awaits us all as the spiritual consequence and conclusion to our earthly existence. Man will return eventually to dust, for sin makes judgment necessary and death inevitable. As Solomon reflects on the reality of life under the sun, he sums up his assessment with the well-known superlative. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The vanity of life in a sin-cursed world is the predominant theme and message of Ecclesiastes. If you go to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, Solomon opens the book in this way. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. We read, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Solomon, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if you turn to the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon closes the book with the very same words, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Essentially, this repeated phrase forms, forms an inclusio, or what are, we know as brackets, around the entire book. And in between Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, and 12, verse 8, Solomon shares various observations and experiences from his own life that lead him to conclude that life under the sun is fleeting, futile, and frustrating. It not only serves as the central theme of Ecclesiastes, but also is the context in w into which Solomon exhorts his reader in the end to live with wisdom, joy, and obedience in the fear of the Lord. In the original language, the word for vanity, hevel, literally means breath or vapor. 
And depending on the context, it can carry a temporal sense and refer to the transient nature of life. However, in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the term is used 38 times, the primary way to understand Hebel is in relation to life's meaning and purpose, namely the meaninglessness or futility of life in a world cursed by sin. Many times our lives seem out of control. At other times, what happens in our lives don't always make sense. Overall, what is highlighted throughout Ecclesiastes is that to seek life's meaning apart from fearing God is an empty pursuit. According to Solomon, it is all vanity and striving after wind. Now, some commentators have suggested that Solomon presents a godless view of life after the fall. They argue that it is an absence of God in Solomon's perspective that leads him to such a negative conclusion. However, in his reflection on the vanity of life, Solomon does not exclude God from the picture. Instead, he affirms that God is our sovereign creator, ruler, and judge. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon acknowledges that God has appointed a time for everything, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, and that God is sovereign over all of it. What Pastor Rick preached on last Sunday. At the same time, his ways are beyond our comprehension. And this is due to the fact that as our creator, God is infinite, and he has made us finite. He is omniscient. We are not. And he has not made us privy to all of his mysterious thoughts and ways. As Moses reminded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. But to attempt to grasp the meaning of his hidden purposes leads only to grief and vexation. For it is this very desire to make one wise that led to man's fall in the first place. And to make matters worse, the fall has further impaired our ability to understand life from God's perspective. Sin has so darkened our minds and caused our thinking to be futile apart from Christ. Thus, Solomon, after seeing every work of God done on the earth, comes to this conclusion in Ecclesiastes 8.17, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He reiterates in our passage in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5, just as you do not know how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
the life outside the Garden of Eden is not only a life beyond human comprehension. It is also a life beyond human control. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, Solomon comments on the futility of his labor under the sun. For he says, quote, I must leave all the fruit of my labor to the man who will come after me, regardless of whether he is wise or foolish. In the end, man has no control over his wealth after his death. Jesus affirmed this truth in Luke chapter 12 in the parable of the rich fool, where a foolish man determines to build bigger barns, to store all his grain and goods, only to have his soul required of him that very same night. While man often prides himself as the captain of his faith and the master of his destiny, Solomon paints a completely different picture of reality. Life in a sin-cursed world is uncertain and unpredictable. For just as we have limited knowledge, we have limited power and control. This truth is supported by Solomon's observation in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 8, that no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Again, from our passage in Ecclesiastes 11, 3 through 4, Solomon illustrates this fact by ma making reference to the events of nature. As the direction that the wind blows and the tree falls is random, and as the activity of the rain and clouds is unpredictable, so life under the sun is beyond human control. Thus, when all has been said and done, Solomon concludes... Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As Solomon describes life in a world beyond human comprehension and control, he adds to this that life under the sun is without lasting significance. As human life is shut, cut short by death, Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 20, that what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. One chapter earlier, he writes, for the fool, for of the fool, as of the wise, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. It was almost exactly three years ago that I remember sitting in the back there on a Sunday, um, and right after service, our brother JC runs up to me, and he has this look on his face, and I'm thinking, probably the Holy Spirit really convicted him with the message that we just heard. Instead, he shows me a news feed on his phone that Kobe Bryant had just died in a helicopter crash. His tragic death rocked the world of sports and made the headlines for the next month or two. But after that, no one really talked about him. Not his five NBA championship rings, his multiple MVP awards, 
or his legacy as one of the greatest men to have ever played the game of basketball. Due to the curse of the fall, death is the common experience for everyone and does not discriminate between the greatest and the least, the righteous and wicked, the rich and poor, or the educated and simple. There is one fate for all men, and their memory is soon forgotten. As the consequence of sin against our eternal creator and sovereign judge, physical death befalls every son of Adam, resulting in a life without lasting significance. Solomon's response to this truth is a familiar one. He writes, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity in a striving after wind. We also see this reality, reality reflected in a life without lasting satisfaction. While Solomon never denies the value of joy, wisdom, and hard work, nor discourages the pursuit of them in this earthly life, he makes it abundantly clear that any meaning or satisfaction derived from these virtues is limited and fleeting. You may recall from the book of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles that Solomon amassed huge amounts of wealth, was granted wisdom from above, and had everything one could ever imagine. Apart from Christ, he was the wisest man to have ever lived, and as the king during the height of Israel's power and prosperity, he had unrestricted access to the riches and resources of his vast kingdom, including the finest of wine, and women. In his own words, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, Ecclesiastes 2.10. Yet the testimony from his own life was that they only brought him temporary pleasure and fulfillment. Lasting satisfaction eluded him. And in the end, not only did all his riches, possessions, wisdom, and labor lead to no profit under the sun, they also resulted in increased grief and pain in his life. Thus he concludes, having experienced and enjoyed the many benefits and blessings from God, all was vanity and striving after wind. Brothers and sisters, this is a message our church needs to hear. You know, looking out all at all of you, you know, I would consider us to be a relatively young church, not just in terms of our age, but also in our maturity and in our wisdom. And we might think we have some time before we consider how we need to redeem our days under the sun. But time passes quicker than we imagine, and tomorrow is never promised to us. In fact, in our passage this morning, Solomon directly addresses his young son, who is probably around many of your ages. And he says, remember also your creator. When? In the days of your youth. You and I would do well to listen to Solomon's counsel, for though we live in a different time and place, nothing is new under the sun. After thousands of years of human history, the challenges and struggles we face are the same. Even with advances in science and technology and in medicine, since Solomon's days, none of, none of these human achievements 
can deliver us from either the curse or the penalty of sin. Here, especially in the Silicon Valley, we are surrounded by wealth and prosperity all around. The temptation to pursue the things of this world, to climb the corporate ladder or work for the next big startup, to get rich quick through investing in cryptocurrency or real estate, to push the idols of education, worldly success, and accolades upon our children, Solomon would say is all vanity. None of these things can satisfy our souls or bring peace to our hearts, let alone improve our standing before God. But it's one thing to agree with Solomon regarding the vanity of this life. I don't think many of us struggle with that. It's entirely another thing to live, to live as if that were true. Your theology or confession is revealed by how you live your life, including how you spend your time and your money. So then, what are you living for today? Are you living for the here and now? Or are you living for eternity? Are you seeking a kingdom here on earth? Or are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? This week, Becky had our boys memorize 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Is your life entirely and exclusively devoted to Christ, or are you living for something in this world? Perhaps your career, your education, your family, even ministry. As John Piper would say, don't waste your life by forgetting the futility of our earthly existence. But in order to redeem all our days under the sun, it is not enough to simply remember the vanity of this life. It must necessarily lead to our second point for this morning. Fear God and keep his commandments. As Solomon contemplates the vanity of life under the sun, he does not promote apathy, passivity, or fear of the unknown. On the contrary, he encourages us to fear God who stands above the sun. And this is Solomon's closing thought and the book's final exhortation given in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. If you would, go with me there. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He writes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Like a lawyer presenting his case before the judge or jury, Solomon has just finished laying down evidence after evidence to support his major argument about the vanity of this life. And here is his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. In a way, all of Ecclesiastes points to this ultimate and final truth. Appearing as a refrain throughout the book, fearing God is the only appropriate response to the vanity of our earthly existence. 
While the world deals with our anxieties and worries through medications and man-centered therapies, the only true remedy for overcoming the fear of the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death is a greater and abiding fear of God. Implicit in the fear of the Lord is a humility that recognizes that life is beyond our comprehension and control. It also accepts the reality that all men must face judgment for sins committed against the holy and righteous Creator. As the only remedy that cuts through the futility of our earthly lives, the fear of God is much more than a feeling of dread or trepidation. It is not less than that, but is much, much more. It is a profound sense of reverence and awe inspired by who God has revealed himself to be in his word. To fear the Lord means to respect, to honor, to worship him as he truly is. It is manifest in a right relationship with God, one in which he is Lord and King, where we commit to living all of life in his conscious presence and under his supreme authority. And according to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, this is the whole duty of man. It is his design and desire for us to fear him. There is no greater purpose for humanity. More specifically, the fear of God is expressed in obedience to his word. It says, fear God and keep his commandments. And we should never separate what God has joined together, whether it's husband and wife, faith and repentance, or fearing God and keeping his commandments. For rightly fearing the Lord always produces and leads to obedience in our lives. Let me say that again. Rightly fearing God always produces obedience in our lives. And the opposite is just as true. We cannot claim that we fear the Lord if we do not obey his word. They are essentially two sides of the same coin. To fear God is to obey him, and to obey him is to fear him. And if you were to do a word study on the fear of the Lord, you would find that in almost every instance that the fear of God is mentioned, not only in Ecclesiastes, not only in the wisdom literature, not only in the Old Testament, but from Genesis to Revelation, it is in relation to obeying his word, listening to his voice, walking in his law, in his statutes, and in his ordinances. Thus, we can say that obedience is the true test of our fear of him. And this truth is affirmed throughout Scripture. But well, I want us to see how it bears out in the life of two godly men. First, turn with me to Genesis 22. And you're all familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac. And in verse 1 of Genesis 22, we read, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
And without wavering, Abraham packs his bags and goes up the mountain. Now skip down to verse 11. As Abraham takes the knife and is about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know what? That you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We see from this account that God's word demands a response. And our response to his commands, whether we obey or not, even in the most difficult of circumstances, reveals whether we truly fear him. And the greatest example and encouragement of this truth is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. As the beloved Son of God, he did not count equality with the Father a thing to be grasped, but he condescended himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, right? what we celebrated during Christmas a few weeks back. According to Matthew, Christ came into this world not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to keep and fulfill them on our behalf. And for 33 years, he lived every moment of his life on earth in the conscious presence of the Father and under his supreme authority. He committed himself to doing the Father's will, to accomplishing all his work, and to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that we who were once his enemies might be redeemed and reconciled to our Creator. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. And all of Scripture, including the book of Ecclesiastes, points us to our Redeemer, who as the Son of Man, personally experienced the vanity of our lives in a fallen world. Yet he perfectly feared the Lord and kept his commandments all the way to Calvary, thereby securing our eternal salvation. As the famous hymn goes, Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Before we move on, there is one final aspect of the fear of God I want to highlight from our text. We saw that to fear God is the whole duty of man. It is expressed in our obedience to his word, but it is also to be motivated by God's judgment upon our lives. It is to be motivated by God's judgment upon our lives. Turn back with me to Ecclesiastes and go to the very last verse that we previously looked at. And anticipating a future judgment, the book ends with a warning to the wicked, but it also serves as an encouragement to the faithful. In light of the vanity of this life, we are to fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Some of you are presently experiencing significant challenges in your home, 
at your workplace, in your relationships, and in ministry. And your faith in God is being tested and refined through the trials of this life. Your suffering and struggles are not in vain. So do not lose heart, but fear him who is faithful and will never let you down. Remember that the only remedy to the vanity and brokenness of our lives is an abiding fear of God expressed in our obedience to him. Not out of slavish fear, but out of love and gratitude for the one who for our sake died and rose again. So then, by his grace, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, looking to our great high priest who is able to sympathize with all our weaknesses and trusting in the promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. For others of you, the fear of God demands that you repent from your sin today. And perhaps you've gone to church all your life, but you have not kept his commandments. Instead, you have been living in sin and in blatant disobedience to his word. And know that his judgment is imminent and sure. For no creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account and who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. At the same time, he's the only one who can save you from his wrath, for there is mercy and forgiveness at the cross. But you must come to the end of yourself, walk away from your sin, and in obedience to his commandment. So then, repent and turn to Christ by faith before it's too late. And that's what it means for you to fear God and keep his commandments. As we arrive at our third and final point from our text this morning, we see how it flows out of the first two. Linked to Proverbs through common authorship, Ecclesiastes teaches that a life of true wisdom is built upon fearing the one who is sovereign over life and death. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. While wisdom certainly has its limitations, it offers clear benefits in this life. Thus Solomon calls for righteous and prudent behavior while accounting for apparent inequalities governed by the providence of God. Specifically, in Ecclesiastes 11.2, he encourages his reader to divide your portion to seven or even to eight, rather than putting all our eggs in one basket. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In, life, in light of circumstances beyond human control and comprehension, he exhorts us to cast your bread upon the waters, verse 1, and to sow your seed in the morning, verse 6. Being idle complacent or passive is not an option for the wise. For he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Verse 4. As commentator Derek Kidner explains, the sovereignty of God rightly understood and applied should jolt us out of apathy and spur us to action. For in the end, nothing goes unnoticed or unassessed. Such is the way of wisdom 
that is anchored in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. In contrast to the pragmatism of this day that drives much of our world, our lives, and our ministries, true wisdom is about living righteously and sensibly according to his word, placing our faith in the one who rules, controls, and judges all things. But there is a third set of commands repeated throughout Ecclesiastes, and that is to rejoice. The futility of life compels us not only to live obediently and to live wisely, but also to live joyfully all our days under the sun. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. We read, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Two chapters earlier, Solomon entreats his reader to go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. Though satisfaction in earthly pleasures is fleeting, God has still approved for us to enjoy food, drink, and fine clothing, and to delight in the wife of our youth. Thus, one sees this command to rejoice as a call for unchecked hedonism. Solomon balances it with a warning in the second half of the verse we just looked at. He writes, But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Notice how Solomon considers rejoicing and fearing God to be complementary in the life of a believer. And perhaps that surprises some of you. Joy and fear seem to be a contradiction in terms, but they are not mutually exclusive. Living joyfully is not quenched by fearing God, as some insist who make Christianity out to be some joyless or drab religion. In fact, the very opposite is true. Living joyfully is only possible when we rightly Fear the Lord. For when we truly fear God, we can receive the many undeserved gifts and blessings of this life with gratitude to Him. We can acknowledge His grace toward us, for it is He who grants riches and wealth and empowers us to work and enjoy the fruit of our labor. We can praise Him as the one from whom all blessings flow, the source of every good and every perfect gift. James 1.17 we can give thanks to him who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6.17. Thus, we are commanded to enjoy his gifts during the few years of our earthly existence. And to rejoice is more than a matter of obedience. It is a matter of urgency. For the prime of life is fleeting, and everything that is to come will be vanity. As we consider its application for our lives today. What significance does this truth hold for you and for me? Well, according to Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, we are to make the best use of the time to redeem all our days under the sun because the days are evil. We are, as you look around, living in evil days. We are also exhorted to rejoice always 
1 Thessalonians 5.16, and to seek wisdom from above, James 3. But what the New Testament reveals and what Ecclesiastes ultimately points to is that true wisdom and joy are found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. According to Colossians 2.3, Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are called and are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The testimony of God's word is that apart from knowing Christ and faith in his gospel, all we are left is is with the wisdom of this world, which is vanity and folly. But praise God that in Christ Jesus, we have the fullness of divine wisdom. But not only wisdom, eternal joy as well. And I know some of you enjoy dining at Michelin-starred restaurants, traveling to Banff or Hawaii, sipping gourmet coffee or tea, going hiking and camping. And we ought to enjoy every blessing that comes to us from the hand of God. But brothers and sisters, our greatest joy is not found in these things, but in Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are not only forgiven of our sins and rescued from hell, but we gain Christ. He's the ultimate source of joy, the pearl of great price, and the treasure of infinite value worth giving up our entire lives for, such that we are able to say with the Apostle Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 3. And having tasted true joy in Christ, he is then able to turn around and exhort other believers to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You and I may not be sitting in a Roman prison cell as the Apostle Paul was when he penned this letter to the Philippians, but we continue to live in a fallen world subjected to futility where pain, suffering, and sin abound. And when the Lord sees fit to strip away those things in our lives and in this world that brings us comfort and confidence, whether it be our health or our job or our savings, we can still rejoice because Christ is ours and the joy we have in him will never fade or be taken away. So then, is Christ your wisdom and joy today? Have you experienced the blessedness of his life through the gospel? In closing, if I can have my final slide, from Ecclesiastes 11 through 12, we learn three ways we ought to live in order to redeem all our days under the sun. It begins with remembering the vanity of life in a fallen world under the curse of sin. And we're reminded daily that the real nature of our problem is our rebellion against God. 
which has resulted in our misery, our anxiety, and our frustration. Death and judgment awaits us at the end of the road. And the only hope we have is to know our sovereign creator, who alone gives meaning to our lives. To fear him and to keep his commandments ultimately, believe, ultimately means, to believe, means to believe in his son, whom he sent into this world to deliver us from the curse of sin by dying on the cross in our place. Only by repenting of our sins and by submitting our lives to him as Lord and King can we find true wisdom and joy to live out all our earthly days under his conscious presence and under his supreme authority. And the blessing of the church is that we get to do this together, to stir up one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another and all the more as we await Christ's return, as he is preparing for us a place with him in our eternal home. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the gospel is what we truly need to redeem all our days under the sun. But the gospel is not just the gift of salvation that we have received through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is not only the power that enables us to lead godly and dignified lives in a fallen world. It is also the message that we as a church are called to go out and to proclaim to a world that stands alienated from God under his wrath. So then, as we consider this new year, 2023, will we be faithful to his calling to live and proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you more for giving us your one and only beloved Son. He is the one, the only one who can redeem us from the curse of sin and death. Lord, as we consider the start of a new year, help us to keep in mind the end of all matters, which is to fear you and to obey your commandments. Lord, would you renew in us a passion, a deeper and deeper passion for Christ, and as we grow in our love and devotion and affection for him, we would likewise grow in our compassion for this world and for those around us that we would call others to faith and repentance in our Redeemer, the only one who can redeem us from this broken world. Would you help us to do that as a church for this new year and for the rest of our lives? It's in Christ's name we pray.